I guess you wanted me to do uh, notes rather than a talk, but we'll see if we can squeeze both in. Uh, if I can stay long enough with access concentration, after a while the focus becomes much easier. Yes. The breath accelerates and I feel like I have just to follow the rhythm or like uh, a boat floating in a stream. This feels very much like the third jhana, uh, but with awareness of breath. Please, can you explain? <clears throat> well, you've got the concentration and the quietness of the third jhana. If you want to make it the third jhana, you've got to find some contentment then focus your attention on the contentment and ignore the breath. But it's not that the jhanas are way different from access concentration. They're a way to take the level of access concentration you've arrived at and take it further by shifting to rapture, to joy, to contentment, to quiet stillness. So yeah, when you're very well settled in access concentration, you will have many of the features of some of the quieter jhanas, particularly number three. If there's sufficient concentration and a feeling of contentment, then you can shift directly into the third jhana. I found the difference between the third jhana and fourth jhana very subtle. Could you please go into more detail into the physical and mental mental aspects to differentiate these two jhanas. The major difference is in the third jhana, it's pleasurable. There's a quiet, calm peacefulness. It's pretty equanimous, but it does have pleasure. Being very content is pleasurable. And your focus is on that sense of contentment. In the fourth jhana, the pleasure has gone away. The contentment is gone and there's just a very much a neutral feeling. This is the major difference. There may be the side effect of going into the fourth jhana, a sense of dropping down, which may manifest physically and that you sort of drop down. Uh, but that's not the essence. The essence is pleasure in the third and the quiet stillness and neutrality in the fourth. Sounds to me like you're not getting deeply into the fourth, maybe just to the edge of it. Let go of any vestige of pleasure and really let go of anything that you might be hanging on to and give yourself to dropping down the well into a deeper place of quiet stillness. With access concentration, when the breath becomes very shallow, should you still try to follow it even though it is hard to distinguish between in and out breath? Or is this the time to switch to the warm feeling? It's going to depend on how much concentration you have. By concentration, I mean non-distractedness. So if your breath has gotten very shallow but there's still a lot of thinking going on, not going to do any good to switch to a pleasant feeling. What you need is the mind to be staying on the object of meditation, the very faint breath, even if it's hard to distinguish in and out, but as best you can. If, however, there's only wispy thoughts in the background, you're not being pulled away, then yeah, go ahead and switch to 
the warm feeling and enjoy the pleasantness of it. That can take you towards the first jhana. Can you give any advice for struggles with sexual desire? Yeah, that's a hard one. (laughs) I know how hard that one is. Um, It's hard because it's biologically fueled as well as psychologically fueled. So even if you can deal with the psychological aspects of it, the biological aspects may keep fueling it or vice versa. One of the things to do is to analyze what's going on and see if, at least at the psychological level, if the sexual desire is actually part of something deeper, such as a feeling of loneliness, wanting to be in a relationship, things like that. If you're finding yourself getting caught up in a Vipassana romance, fantasizing about somebody, something like that, see if you can get a grip on reality. I mean, you don't know the person. You don't know what they're like at all. Uh, you're, it's your, just your imagination doing all this stuff. But if it's just... If it's just sexual desire that's there and it's more biologically fueled, it is difficult to work with it. Again, try and see how craving brings dukkha. You're craving this sexual energy and it's giving you the dukkha of not being able to practice as effectively as you want. Um, But yeah, it's difficult. I wish I had better suggestions, definitely. But yeah, if there's a an object present, get a grip. See, see, see that everybody is less than perfect, and that your fantasies are just fantasies. How would you describe your meditation practice? Uh, Is it aimed at reaching enlightenment, Buddhahood, arhatship, liberation? Uh, I think probably the word I would use would be awakening. That the the other words are loaded. Uh, Enlightenment would probably be the second closest. Buddhahood, okay, you're talking about Theravadan Buddhahood or Mahayana Buddhahood. They have different ideas. Arhanship, you're talking about, again, Theravadan view of Arhanship or Mahayana view of Arhanship. Liberation, that's good. Liberation is also good. But I think I would go for awakening. I have to admit that a lot of the reason I do this practice is simply out of curiosity. I want to know what the heck is going on. I'm just curious. And waking up to the truth seems like a good way to spend my time. So the curiosity is a real driving force there. So the waking up to the truth of what's really going on, what's really happening, is a driving force for me. If one is not a Theravadan or a Mahayana Buddhist, what is the best language to use Uh, to frame the desire to awaken. Yeah, desire to awaken. 
wanting to wake up. Um, yeah, or liberation. I think those are the best words. Um, yeah, I have my my orientation is closer to Theravadan than Mahayana, but that's a very very generalized statement. And I actually would say that I'm not Mahayana or Hinayana or Theravada, but more Suttayana. I look to the suttas as the vehicle. I'm more interested in that. Though I will contradict myself seriously when I start on a talk, but okay. (laughs) You've mentioned several times the first aspect of enlightenment or the first step of enlightenment, stream entry. Could you please explain what it is and the different stages of enlightenment? Four stages of enlightenment that uproot ten fetters, ten things that bind us to the wheel of samsara. Each of the stages is referred to as a path moment, and it's an experience of nibbana, an experience without an experiencer, a deep experience of not-self, such that it transforms you. The first one is called stream entry, a glimpse of nibbana, and it uproots three of the ten fetters, personality view, In other words, you've experienced that there ain't nobody home, so you no longer believe you have a self. Problem is, it still feels like you have a self, and so you keep forgetting it. First stage also uproots the fetters of belief in the efficacy of rites and rituals, that rites and rituals will get you enlightened. You didn't get there with rites and rituals. You got there via insight. And the third one is skeptical doubt. You did what the Buddha told you to do. You got the results he said you were going to get. What's to doubt? You can do it, and the path leads in the direction it promises. So those are uprooted at the first stage. But greed and hatred haven't been touched. At the second stage, which is called a once-returner, greed and hatred are reduced significantly. Ayakema said they become uh, preference and irritation. At the third stage, greed and hatred are uprooted entirely. Third stage is called a non-returner. So the first stage, the stream enterer, they will not be reborn in one of the hell realms or the lower realms, the animal realm, the warring gods, the hungry ghosts. And they will return at most seven more times to do the work before coming enlightenment. Enlightened. It's like the safe spot. You get there, all right, you're set. The once returner will return once more before becoming enlightened. The non returner, if they die before they become enlightened, will be reborn in one of the heavenly realms and finish up there. They still have five fetters remaining. Desire for rebirths in world of form, desire for rebirth in formless world, restlessness, ignorance, and conceit. The conceit is the conceiving of a self. And so what needs to be done is to make the breakthrough in consciousness so that you shatter the illusion of a self. 
so it no longer feels like a self, so that you're not making decisions based on the illusion of a self. You're no longer selfish, in other words. And that's by gaining a deep enough insight because you've had a deep enough experience of not-self. And it uproots the illusion. And then with no more self, there's no more craver and no more craving and no more dukkha. At least that's what it says in the suttas. Okay. So. Tonight I want to talk about dependent origination and emptiness. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses or thematic discourses, there is a book on dependent origination. Book 12 contains around about 100 suttas. I think there's 90 suttas on dependent origination. And one of my most favorite ones is Sutta 15, the Katyana Gota Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was living at Savati, and there the venerable Katyana Gota approached the Blessed One, saluted him, sat down to one side, and said, Venerable Sir, right view, right view, it is said, to what extent is their right view? Now, the first thing to notice is this is the venerable Katyana Gota. This is not a novice monk. He's been a monk long enough so that he's venerable. So you're going to get an advanced teaching. I usually preface this talk by saying this is an advanced teaching. If you find it going over your head, never mind. All right? Uh, hopefully there are some people in the room that find this beneficial. If it's not making any sense to you, just keep practicing. You'll get there eventually. All right? So don't worry about it. This is, yeah, it's the venerable Katyana Gota. And so the Buddha responds, By and large, Katyana, this world takes as its object a polarity, that of the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. Okay, so existence, the notion of existence, is the idea that things really exist. They have an essence. In particular, I have an essence, an eternal soul that's going to keep going. And non-existence is the opposite. Things don't have an essence. They get destroyed. They're gone. They're completely wiped out. Nothing remaining. Nihilism. So the ideas of eternalism and nihilism. But when one sees the origination of the world as it is, with, as it actually is with right discernment, non-existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. When one sees the cessation of the world as it actually is with right discernment, existence with reference to the world does not occur to one. If you go out into the world and you pay attention to the arising and passing of phenomena, when you see things arising, you don't think nothing exists. And when you think, see things passing away, you don't think 
everything lasts forever, right? You've got an idea of, yeah, things come and go. By and large, Katyana, this world is in bondage to attachments, clingings, and biases. But one with right view does not get involved with or cling to these attachments, clinging, fixations of awarenesses, biases, or latent tendencies. Nor is one resolved on myself. One with right view has an open mind. One doesn't get caught up in belief systems. One of my dear friends said, Remember, you can't have a belief system without BS. Okay? One has no uncertainty or doubt that when there is a rising, only dukkha is arising. And when there is passing away, only dukkha is passing away. You might be going, wait a second, wait a second. I mean, that soup tonight, that was good. That wasn't dukkha. It arose and it passed away. And there's no dukkha at all, right? What I think is being referred to here is, remember the five aggregates are the five aggregates of clinging. And when the Buddha talks about dukkha in brief, he talks, he says, and what is dukkha in brief? It is the five aggregates affected by clinging. So I think what's being referred to here is one has no uncertainty or doubt that when there is an arising, only the five aggregates affected by clinging are arising, and if you cling, you'll experience dukkha. And when there's a passing away, only the five aggregates affected by clinging is passing away. And if you cling, you experience dukkha. In this way, one's knowledge is independent of others. It is to this extent, Katyana, that there is right view. All right, not getting caught in things existing permanently or things being destroyed. Middle way. The middle way between eternalism and annihilationism. Everything exists. That is one extreme. Everything doesn't exist. That is the second extreme. Avoiding these two extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. From ignorance as a requisite condition come the concoctions. From concoctions as a requisite condition comes consciousness. From consciousness as a requisite condition comes mind and body. From mind and body, etc., up until the arising of old age, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and despair. Such is the origination of this entire mass of dukkha. Now, with the remainderless fading away and cessation of that ignorance comes the cessation of concoctions. From the cessation of concoctions comes the cessation of consciousness. From the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of mind and body. From the cessation all the way up to, from the cessation of birth comes the cessation of aging and death, sorrow, pain, and despair. All of these cease. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of dukkha. So what the Buddha is saying is, 
Don't look in at the world in terms of things really existing and don't look at the world in terms of things really being destroyed. See the world in terms of dependently originated phenomena. In other words, don't go looking for nouns. It's all verbs. It's all just causes and conditions rolling on. Actions producing results. Right? Nothing is really existing. Nothing is really being destroyed. That's the extremes if you're picking existence or destruction. What you need to see is dependent origination rolling on. All right, so that's what's presented in the suttas. This, I think, is a very important lesson to find the middle way not only between indulgence in sensual pleasures and indulgence in asceticism. That doesn't work. What's needed is the middle way between those two. But also the middle way is the middle way between the two extremes of inherent existence and nihilism by seeing things as dependently originated. Now, this particular sutta is very important. It's one of the foundations of one of the most important teachings in Mahayana Buddhism. This most important teaching is the Mulamayamaka Karika, the fundamental verses on the middle way, composed by Nagarjuna. Nagarjuna lived about 100 A.D. Supposedly, he was born to a Brahmin family in South India at the foot of an Arjuna tree. He excelled at the Brahminical learning and by the age of 20 was recognized as a great scholar. But he had a sensuous side and he learned from a magician how to make himself invisible. He and three friends made themselves invisible and snuck into the king's palace and uh, had a good time in the harem quarters, shall we say. The king found out about this. He was most displeased. He stationed soldiers behind the curtains in the harem quarters and told them to strike above the footprints in the carpet. Nagarjuna's three friends were killed. Nagarjuna escaped only by standing next to the king. He managed to get out of the palace and he fled to the hills. You see, he had come to see that craving causes dukkha. He studied the teachings of the Buddha and after three months had mastered the earlier doctrine, the suttas, but found it didn't answer his deepest questions. At that point, he encountered a Mahayana monk. Mahayana Buddhism at that time was just beginning to flourish and took as its ideal the Bodhisattva, one who forgoes their own entry into Nibbana and keeps returning for the benefit of others. 
deeper emphasis on compassion. Nargajuna was sufficiently awed by this that he left his mountain hideaway and traveled throughout India seeking more Mahayana teachings. He honed his debating skills and defeated all comers, Buddhist and non-Buddhist alike. He founded an order and rules for his disciples to live by and eventually said, I have no master. At that point, some Nagas, some mythical sea serpents, had compassion for him and took him to the bottom of a lake where the Prajma Paramita Sutras had been preserved in non-human realms until it was time for them to be disseminated. The Prajma Paramita Sutras are discussions amongst the Buddha and some of his leading disciples, principally focusing on emptiness. But they were thought to be too difficult for the people who had lived earlier, and now the time was ripe, and Nargajuna was the one who was to bring them out into the world. He returned to the human realm with the Prajma Paramita Sutras, and he composed the Malamayamaka Karika as a commentary to them, along with several other works. At one point, a king arranged a contest of magical powers between Nargajuna and a Brahmin. The Brahmin created a lake and a lotus throne in the center of the lake and seated himself on the throne and mocked Nargajuna for being stranded on dry land. Nargajuna conjured up a white elephant which waded into the lake and tossed the Brahmin back on dry land. The Brahmin admitted defeat, but he wished that Nargajuna were dead. Nargajuna locked himself in a room. The next day, a worried disciple broke down the door. A cicada flew out. At least that's the story. <laughs> All we know for sure, somebody wrote the Mulamayamaka Karika. Somebody that was really quite amazing, had a very, very powerful intellect. Now, the fundamental verses on the middle way are debate notes. It's not a fully sketched out treatise or anything like that. And the case could probably be made that the Prajma Paramita Sutras are actually a commentary on the Mulamayamaka Karika. Um, because nowhere in there does Nargajuna refer to the Prajma Paramita Sutras, but he certainly refers to emptiness. Nargajuna was really the first person to speak of the Dharma in his own voice. There was the Buddha's teachings, and after that, well, some people composed new suttas, it appears, and they put the words in the mouth of the Buddha. And then there was, that was followed by the Abhidhamma movement, where they took the various lists of four things and five things and twelve things and turned them into lists of 80 things and 108 things and really got into the nitty-gritty details, um, tending a bit towards counting the angels dancing on ahead of a pen. There's some interesting things 
in the Abhidhamma. And there's some things, I think, that are straying off course from the direction that the Buddha was trying to teach. Nargajuna seems to be a reformer. He, in his Mulamayamaka Karika, has an imaginary opponent raise some argument which is much in line with what you find in the Abhidhamma. And then he rebuts that argument with, well, what's much in line with what you find in the suttas. So, was he really a Mahayanist? Well, he certainly laid the groundwork for the primacy of the teaching of emptiness. So in that sense, yes, he's one of the founders of the Mahayana movement, although it was underway before he was born. Um, But I think we could say that he was more a reformer than anything else. And indeed, he does mention one of the suttas, one of the Buddha's suttas by name the Katyanagota Sutta, the one I just read you. Because what he's doing is building on this sutta, looking to avoid the extremes of eternalism or annihilationism and looking at things in terms of dependently originated. He also mentions one Mahayana Sutra by name. So he obviously was looking at all of the teachings that were available at his time. The Mulamayamaka Karika is a difficult work to approach. It's written in another language, and so translation doesn't really bring across all that's there. But Stephen Batchelor has done a very good job of making it accessible. He's written this book called Verses from the Center. It has a very excellent introduction in it where he gives some background on Nargajuna and the biography I just told you. And some more background on Buddhism. Uh, Definitely worth reading just for the introduction. But he's also come up with a translation of the Maloyamaka Karika that I think makes it much more approachable than the scholarly translations that you usually find. It's a poetic translation. And although not 100% accurate, I think it serves very well to give an introduction to the thought of Nagarjuna. And so what I want to do tonight is share with you a few of these poems. There are 27 of them, I believe, and they cover a whole host of subjects. And what Nagarjuna is trying to point out is that things are empty of inherent existence. This table does not have tableness in it. Tableness is an attribute that we impute to the table. We put the table in there. I mean, if you're a leprechaun, it's a bus shelter, right? Okay, if you come from someplace where they don't have tables, you don't think of it as a table, right? It's actually some trees, It may be firewood someday, right? So it doesn't have any inherent existence as a table. In fact, nothing has any inherent existence as anything. That's the whole deal. That's where we go wrong because we think there's an inherent existence in me, 
called me. So that's the mistake. And what we need to do is see the empty nature of everything, in particular ourselves. So Nargajuna starts off with walking. I do not walk between the step taken and the one I'm yet to take, which both are motionless. Is walking not motion between one step and the next? What moves between them? Could I not move as I walk? If I move when I walk, there would be two motions, one moving me and one my feet. Two of us stroll by. There is no walking without walkers and no walkers without walking. Can I say that walkers walk? Couldn't I say they don't? Walking does not start in steps taken or to come or in the act itself. Where does it begin? Before I raise a foot, is there a motion, a step taken or to come, whence walking could begin? What has gone? What moves? What is to come? Can I speak of walkers when neither walking, steps taken, nor to come ever end? Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, there would be walkers who do not walk. These moving feet reveal a walker, but did not start him on his way. There was no walker prior to departure. Who was going where? Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, there would be walkers who do not walk. Can you wrap your head around this? You know, when you're walking, you are a walker. But walking is something different. And yet, it is dependent upon there being a walker. And all the walkers are dependent upon the fact that they are walking. So there's this interrelationship here, yet neither of these is exactly the same as the other. These are designations that we're giving, and each has its dependency. Seeing. If my eyes cannot see themselves, how do they see something else? Were there no trace of something seen, how could I see it all? Neither seeing nor unseeing see. Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? Just as a child is born from mother and father, so consciousness springs from eyes and colorful shapes. Without these eyes, how could I know consciousness, contact, vedna and craving, clinging, evolving, birth, aging, and death? Seers seeing sights explain hearers hearing sounds, smellers smelling smells, tasters tasting tastes, touchers touching textures, thinkers thinking thoughts. 
Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. Just like with the walking. We think there's a noun, me, the seer, and the verb, seeing. And yet these two are totally dependent on each other. Body. I have no body apart from parts which form it. I know no parts apart from a body. A body with no parts would be unformed. A part of my body apart from my body would be absurd. (laughs) Were the body here or not, it would need no parts. Partless bodies are pointless. Do not get stuck in the body. I cannot say my body is like its parts. I cannot say it's something else. Feelings, perceptions, drives, minds, things are like this body in every way. Conflict with emptiness is no conflict. Objections to emptiness, no objections. I cannot say my body is like its parts. I cannot say it is something else. So the table is like its legs and its top. No, it's not like its legs and its top. But it's not its legs and its top. I mean, this is a leg, it's not the table. This is the top, it's not the table. And yet it's not independent of the legs and the top. Can you see the relationship here? That dependently originated phenomena are dependent on the phenomena from which they originate. You can't separate it out. You can't have something that is inherently existing if it's a dependently originated phenomena. And if you start looking, you can't find any inherently existing objects. All you're finding is phenomena that are dependently originated. The next one is self. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What's inside is me, what's outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Buddhas speak of self and also teach not self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. The Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it is both real and unreal and it's neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixable by fixations, incommunicable, inconceivable, 
indivisible. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. That one might be worth reading again. Were mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. Are you your body? Well, you have brand new cells from what you had seven years ago. Does that mean you're somebody different than you were seven years ago? Hmm. And your mind? (laughs) You change your mind a lot faster than you change your body. Right? Are you your memories? How accurate are your memories? How many people in this room can tell me all the telephone numbers they've had in their whole life? Yeah, I thought so. That's important stuff. You memorize that, and now you can't even remember them all. You think you're your memories? Well, I got news for you. When you get older, it's going to get kind of bad there. right? And your current perceptions, that's changing all the time. So you're not your body and you're not your mind. They come and go all the time. But if you're something else, then they would say nothing about you. The act of identification is a mistake. You are dependently originated phenomena. You're dependent upon your mind and your body. What is mine when there is no me? If there's no sense of self, then there's no sense of mine. Were self-consciousness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. This is what we're doing. We're going around. If it's inside, it's me. If it's out there, it's mine. This is how we're relating to the world. When these thoughts end, then the compulsion stops. This craving, this having to do this, that's craving. Repetition ceases. You stop doing the things that bring the dukkha. Freedom dawns. Fixation spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops. Fixations. Now, fixations is Stephen Batchelor's translation of the word papancha. Papancha is a great word. It's mental proliferation. It's one thought spilling on after another. You might have encountered that at some recent point in history. Okay? So your papancha is spawning thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. A man is asked by his wife, Please go to the market and buy some potatoes. Yes, dear. So he stands up and he starts to head to the market, and she says, Oh, and be sure and get a good price. Yes, dear. So he's walking towards the market. Yeah, good potatoes is what she's going to want, too. You know how hard it is to get good potatoes and a good price? 
I mean, you can get good potatoes for a dear price, but if you get a good price, you've got to be careful. Sometimes they put bad potatoes at the bottom. Sometimes they put in a rotten potato at the bottom. Oh, I hate rotten potatoes. They smell terrible. Just at that point, he arrives at the market, walks up to the potato seller and says, you can keep your rotten potatoes. (laughs) Walks off. Papancha. One thought after another, and then suddenly, you're believing those thoughts. We have a name for that. I mean, amongst the managers and the teachers, it shows up on retreat. It's called Yogi Mind. Uh, The most famous example of Yogi Mind, perhaps, is the note they got at one retreat center requesting that they call the airport and request that flights... The pilots don't fly over the retreat center. It was causing too much noise. Perfectly reasonable request, right? (laughs) The outcome of papancha. Emptiness stops papancha. Buddha speaks of self and also teaches not self and also says there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. When things dissolve, when you stop thingifying the world, when you stop looking at the world as a bunch of nouns, when you start seeing it in terms of dependently originated phenomena, then there's nothing left to see. There's no things being born and there's no things ceasing. It's just dependently originated phenomena rolling on. And when you've got that perspective, you've got freedom. Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it is both real and unreal and it's neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixable by fixations, incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. If you stop that papancha, those fixations, and you really take a look, the universe is doing just fine. You know, I mean, yeah, a little pocket zaduka going on around here, but the universe, I mean, it's just unfolding just fine. But it's hard to communicate that because we're communicating based on things. The universe as a whole, which is what you've got to communicate if you're going to get the whole picture, is too big for our little pea brains. Right? So we cut it up into pieces, and we think that the cut up pieces somehow can be separated out and manipulated. But it's really incommunicatable, inconceivable. You can't conceive it into little pieces. Indivisible. You can't cut it up into pieces. You've got, if you're going to understand what's going on, you've really got to, well, maybe not comprehend the universe as a whole, but apprehend it that way, because that's what's really going on. It's not a bunch of individual things floating around. It looks like that, but it's vastly interconnected. Just like I pointed out, you are incredibly dependent upon the one kilo of air pressure per square centimeter that's holding you together. That's there. You can't walk away from it. You're dependent on the food that you ate. It's there. You're dependent on 
the language you speak, you're dependent. It just goes on and on. You're not separate from the universe as a whole. The great American naturalist John Muir said that if you go for a walk in the wilderness and you pick up anything you find, you find it's nailed to the whole rest of nature. It's all vastly interconnected. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from them nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. You too are dependently originated phenomena. You are not the same as the air that you depend upon or the food that you depend upon, but neither are you severed from them. Right? You're not the same as and you're not different from them. You're never forever fused with it, and you're never severed from it. You're just part of the dependently originated phenomena rolling on. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. Now this is interesting, because what Nagarjuna is saying here is he's saying that wisdom, the seeing of what's really going on, can arise even if the Buddha's dispensation has been lost, even if there's no more Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, no more suttas. Looking at the world and seeing what's there, you can recover this. It's not coming out of books. It's coming out of insight into the nature of reality. In the Buddhist tradition, there's the tradition of the Pacheka Buddhas. People that become enlightened on their own by investigating the nature of reality and seeing the wisdom that bursts forth by itself, but they don't teach. So it's interesting that Nagarjuna would basically bring up the concept of a Pacheka Buddha rather than perhaps bringing up the concept of a Bodhisattva if he were a Mahayanist. But certainly his teachings did lead in the direction of the development of the Mahayana tradition. One more. Awakening. This one starts out, actually, it's not given in the book here, with a complaint by an opponent. And this complaint is that Nagarjuna is subverting the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the Four Noble Truths, that his emptiness, basically the opponent has misunderstood, that his emptiness is nothing but nihilism. All right, and so now Nagarjuna answers. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep, Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. Misperceiving emptiness injures the unintelligent, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. 
The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dharma, knowing it hard to intuit its depths. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you are riding. To see things existing by nature is to see them without causes or conditions, thus subverting causality, agents, tools, and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. Were everything not empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. Without dependent origination, how could I suffer dukkha? This shifting dukkha has no nature of its own. If it did, how could it ever have a cause? Deny emptiness and you deny the origins of dukkha. If dukkha existed by nature, how could it ever cease? Absolute dukkha could never stop. How could you cultivate a path that existed by nature? How could it lead you to the end of dukkha? A path on which you tread can have no essence of its own. If confusion existed by nature, I would always be confused. How could I let go? How could I know anything? Letting go and realizing cultivation and fruition could never happen. Who can attain absolute goals that by nature are unattainable? Since no one could reach them, there would be no Sangha. With no truths, no Dharma either. With no Sangha or Dharma, how could I awaken? I would not depend on awakening nor awakening on me. A naturally unawakened person would never awaken no matter how hard he practiced for its sake. He would never do good or evil. An unempty person would do nothing. He'd experience the fruits of good and evil without having done good or evil deeds. How can fruits of good and evil not be empty if they are experienced? To subvert emptiness and dependent origination is to subvert the conventions of the world. It engenders passivity, acts without an author, authors who do not act. Beings would be born or die, would not be born or die. They would be frozen in time, alien to variety. If things were unempty, you could attain nothing. Dukkha would never end. You would never let go of compulsive acts. To see dependent origination is to see dukkha, its origin, cessation, and the path. That's probably worth doing again. There's a lot of good stuff there. All right. So the opponent objects, saying that emptiness doesn't stops everything from happening. And Nargajuna says, no. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. All right. This is the relative and the absolute, or the relative and the ultimate. But notice Nagarjuna says partial truths of the world. Actually, what he said 
is truths that do not fully reveal. So the truth is there's, what, 30 people sitting in this room. But that doesn't fully reveal what's going on. And then there are the truths which are sublime, the truths that are necessary to learn in order to experience freedom. This doctrine of the two truths is a very important doctrine. Sometimes the mistake, however, is made of thinking that the ultimate truth is somehow the real truth and the relative truth. That's, that's not real, and you can dismiss the relative truth. But if you do that, when you're eating a sandwich, you wind up eating your fingers. You've got to use the relative truth to be able to cross the street without getting run down by a bus. Okay, It's just two different perspectives. It's not that one is better than the other. You've got to use the appropriate truth depending on what's going on. An example from modern physics is light a wave or a particle? Well, the answer is yes. But it depends on how you look at it. If you set up an experiment in the right way such that only particles can make this happen and you shine the light, you see particles. If you set up an experiment in such a way that only waves can make it happen and you shine the light, you see waves. So is light a wave or a particle? It depends on how you look at it. It's the same with the two truths. It's not light is really one or the other. It's not that particles are better than waves or waves are better than particles. It just depends on the circumstances. Same thing here. You've got to deal with the relative truths. That's how we communicate. We talk about things. We can't deal with the whole universe at once. We certainly can't communicate the whole universe at once. I mean, what, you're going to go around going, whole universe, whole universe. <laughs> it doesn't work. You've got to use the relative truth. Right? But if you're stuck in the relative truth, not everything gets revealed. You've got to also take the other perspective. Partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. You have to use the relative truth in order to point somebody in the direction of the ultimate truth. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. This is where the end of dukkha comes, not from getting the relative truths all lined up correctly, but with a deep, intuitive understanding of the absolute truth. The relative truth is you are going to get old, sick, and die. Right? That's it. <clears throat> you got a self, and it's going to get old, and it's going to get sick, and you're going to be dead. No freedom there. No death. <clears throat> no deathless. Your only hope of finding freedom 
is to be able to step out of the perspective of the relative truths into the perspective of the absolute truth. That's where the freedom lies. But the absolute truth is difficult, right? It can only be intuited. What we got is a bunch of fingers pointing at the moon. And no matter how good a job you do at describing the finger, if you don't look at the moon, you don't understand. Right? So the relative truths are the fingers pointing at the ultimate truth. We have to use these relative truths so that we can intuit the truth that will set us free. And then Nagarjuna addresses his opponent. Misperceiving emptiness enters the unintelligent, like you, Mr. Opponent, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dharma, knowing it hard to intuit its depths. Some people have little dust in their eyes, but obviously you're not one of them. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. So this is restating the opponent's argument and switching it around. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you're riding. This is, this, you forget the horse you're riding. This is uh, an Indian story of a man who had 25 horses. And one morning he saddled up and he went out to count his horses. One, two, three, four, 23, 24. Oh no, one of the horses is missing because he forgot the horse he was riding. All right? So, to see things existing by nature is to see them without causes or conditions. To see this as having an inherent existence of table is to see it having always been a table and always going to be a table. There's no causes and conditions that made it become a table. Right? If it became, if it becomes a table, it's not inherently a table. Right? It, it arose as a table due to causes and conditions. So if you see things existing by nature, you see things as unempty, in other words, then they exist, but there were no causes or conditions bringing them into to being. So if you see things existing by nature, you see them without causes and conditions, thus subverting causality, agents, tools, and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. And then the heart of the teaching. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. This translation doesn't bring it out, but what Nagarjuna is saying when he says, which dependently configured is the middle way, he's saying that emptiness itself is empty. Don't go making an absolute out of emptiness. It's just as empty as everything else. Seeing it all empty, even emptiness, this is the middle way. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. Were everything not empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. 
Without dependent origination, how could I suffer pain? So if things were not empty, they'd be stuck there. That's it. No causes and conditions. So they're not going to change, right? Things change when the supporting conditions go away, and then they change. But if there's no causes or conditions, they're stuck that way forever. If there is no emptiness, then the universe is just simply frozen solid. This shifting dukkha has no nature of its own. If it did, how could it have a cause? If you're experiencing dukkha and the dukkha is unempty, it doesn't have a cause. It's just there, unfortunately, forever. Deny emptiness and you deny the origins of dukkha. If dukkha existed by nature, it could never cease. Absolute dukkha could never stop. How could you cultivate a path that existed by nature? I mean, unless you're doing the Eightfold Path perfectly right now, you better hope there's some emptiness there so that you can change because change is dependent upon things not being empty. How could you reach... uh, A path on which you tread can have no essence of its own. Think about this. A path through the woods is a place where there's no woods. It's empty. If confusion existed by nature, I would always be confused. Right? So if you're confused now and you're not empty, you're stuck being confused forever. How could I know anything? Letting go and realizing cultivation and fruition could never happen. It's all dependent on things being empty. It's all dependent on things being dependently originated, not solid, fixed entities. Who can attain absolute goals that by nature are unattainable? If you're not enlightened now and there's not any emptiness, you ain't going to get enlightened because by nature you're unenlightened. Since no one could attain them, there would be no community, no sangha. With no truths, no dharma either. With no sangha or dharma, how could I attain awakening? I would not depend on awakening nor awakening on me. A naturally unawakened person would never awaken no matter how hard he practiced for its sake. So if your delusions are the essence of who you are, you're stuck there. Better hope your delusions have causes and conditions so you can deal with them. He would do no good or evil and an empty person could do nothing. He'd experience the fruits of good and evil without having done good or evil deeds. How can fruits of good and evil not be empty if they are experienced? The emptiness is the dependently originated nature of the universe. To subvert emptiness and dependent origination is to subvert conventions of the world. It engenders passivity. Acts without an author, authors who do not act. Beings would not be born or die. They would be frozen in time, alien to variety. If all the emptiness goes away, you better hope you're in a good mood because you're stuck that way forever. If things were unempty, you could attain nothing. Dukkha would never end. You would never let go of compulsive acts. 
To see dependent origination is to see dukkha, its origin, cessation, and the path. There's, the next one is on nirvana. I'm just going to read you one little verse from it. Life is no different from nirvana. Nirvana, no different from life. Life's horizons are nirvanas. The two are exactly the same. Usually it's translated, samsara is no different from nirvana. Nirvana is no different than samsara. The horizons of the two are exactly the same. In other words, nirvana is not some place you go. It's not a thing. It's a realization. It's the realization of the utter emptiness of everything. In other words, it's the utter it's the realization of the utter dependently originated nature of the universe. So it is with great trepidation I say any questions? <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Contingency. Yeah, that's the word that Stephen Batchelor is using to translate paticca dependent origination. So something is contingent on something else. Something depends on something else. This water pitcher being this high off the floor is contingent on there being a table to hold it up. All right, so the height of the water pitcher is a dependently originated phenomena. So contingency is simply dependent origination. Is another word for the same thing, exactly. Sutayana. Yeah. Is, is there um, a sort of basic book which tells, I mean, like what you've been doing, which is kind of trans, transcribing the original source and putting it into kind of everyday language? Is there um, a book which tells that? Not really. There's some books that do it for some stuff. Aya Kema's book, Who is Myself, does it very well for uh, one sutta, Dikanikaya number nine. Her book, Visible Here and Now, does it very well for uh, Dikanikaya number two, the Samanyapala Sutta, where Ajitasatu comes to see the Buddha. Um, her book, When the Iron Eagle Flies, takes a look at transcendental dependent origination. Uh, which is Samyutta Nikaya 12.23. So she's got three books that are addressing suttas in that way. Some of her other writings do it to some extent. Um, But yeah, there's not a lot of people out there doing it. You find occasional topics. Um, 
Ajahn Buddha Das's book, Mindfulness with Breathing, is a commentary on uh, the Majjhima Nikaya number 118, the Sutta on Mindfulness of Breathing. But, yeah. Yeah, Bhikkhu Bodhi's, in the words of the Buddha, contains a number of translations. And what he's done is he collects them by topic and he gives a very nice introduction. And then there's the suttas. But he's not unpacking individual suttas. But that's a very good place to start if you want to read suttas. In the words of the Buddha. In the words? the Analayo, yeah. Analayo does a very, very good job with the Satipatthana Sutta. His book, Satipatthana. Yeah, it's it's truly a brilliant book. Um, trying to think of this others. On my website, I, I have Sutta study guides. And if you click on that, there are some study guides to each of the suttas doesn't unpack stuff like this, but at the bottom there's also sutta commentaries, and it's a list of various commentaries. Some are pretty good, and some are okay, and some are actually quite incorrect. So you have to be careful. And it's modern commentaries and ancient commentaries as well. So there's a little bit there. Um, for information, and Analayo's book is mentioned, and Ayakima's books are mentioned. Um, yeah, not a lot out there. I was thinking particularly about dependent origination. Um, there's Ajahn Buddha Das's book on dependent origination, which you have to order from Thailand. The instructions to do so are on my website. There's uh, Joanna Macy's doctoral thesis on dependent origination and systems theory, which is also worth reading. It's a book. I've forgotten the title, but again, it's on my website in the reading list. Those are the only two books I found that I, I found were really good on dependent origination. There's, there's not a lot of material out there. Book. I was I was reading the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses. So it was number thirty eight in the middle length discourses. Years ago, I read another book by on what's called the book. I've heard of that one. I haven't read that one. If so, that would be quite interesting. I definitely admire Alan Watts' writings. You know, I, I've read other books on dependent origination, but none of them are like, oh yeah, this is a great one, I should recommend it. But I haven't read that one. How far do you reckon one can go in terms of thinking? <laughs> It's gonna it's gonna take practice as well. Yeah. Practice meditation. Meditation. It's gonna take some meditating. It's gonna take training your mind to actually look at the world in a different way. Training your mind to see verbs instead of nouns. So uh, 
there are a lot of scholars of Buddhism. Some of them actually know what they're talking about. Others, you know, because they don't practice, they really don't understand what they're talking about. They, they got all the words, they translated them and everything else. But without the practice, it doesn't quite work. So you've got to have the practice in order to guide your thinking. Uh, for example, you've never eaten a mango. And I give you a great description of a mango. It's a fruit. It's got a peel on the outside. You've got to peel it off. It's orange and juicy on the inside. It tastes really good. There's a big seed. Don't eat the seed. Do you know what a mango is? You can think about that description as much as you want. You're not going to know what a mango is till you bite into the mango. I mean, for my description, you think it's a peach. Right? You've got to bite into the mango. So thinking can only take you so far. I mean, you can Google mangoes on the Internet for months and still not know what one tastes like. You've got to do the practice. And that practice would be essentially seeing the individualization in your own experience. Like, you, know, you notice whatever the phenomenon of craving, and you do the, you know, you know, just the arising of craving and how it came about. You deconstruct the whole thing, so to speak. Well, deconstruct isn't the best word. But it, it'll work. Yeah. See what's going on. Practice the four foundations of mindfulness. That's it. Look at your body. See it as not my body, but what it is. Look at your mind. See what's happening there. Buddha said, the entire universe, O oh monks, is found in this fathom-long body. You know, so you don't have to explore the whole universe, the whole world, to understand dependent origination. You can explore just right here. But you've actually got to sit down and take a look as well as think about it. And that's what the meditation practice is about. Can you go one more time on uh, emptiness is also empty? <laughs> okay. Emptiness is a concept that we're using to try and intuit the sublime. Right. We're, we're using the concept of dependently originated phenomena, of phenomena not having an essence of their own. But emptiness, this concept, is also a dependently originated thing. Right? So it's also empty. I don't know if that helped or not. That's the best I can do. But really getting the emptiness of emptiness is quite good. In one of the, there's a book by Garfield, J. Garfield, which is a translation of the Malamayamaka Karika and a commentary with it. And in there he says, Nagarjuna is going around kicking away ladders. You know, so he climbs up somewhere and then he kicks away the ladder and he climbs up the next one and he's kicking away the ladder until he gets to the very top and he kicks away the ladder of emptiness as well. Yeah, it's all empty. It's all dependently originated. So don't go making a deity of emptiness. That's just as mis- big a mistake as making a deity or an entity out of anything. It's just dependently originated phenomena. But that paragraph is so interesting. How 
created things manifest, but they only manifest because they are empty. What? There's no start and no end on it. No start and no end. And you're not even here. And you're not even here in the, in the ultimate sense. But in the relative sense, we are here, and it's getting close to 10 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, there's no time either, right? Time, time's just a made-up thing. It's, it arises as a result of change. No such thing as time. There's just change. We attempt to measure change. Time's just as imaginary as yourself. Okay, so we'll take a short break and then I'll do meta.